You are now listening to Discover Your Potential with renowned radio talk show host and certified holistic practitioner, Cindy Gilman. So listen, participate, be inspired. Know that you can discover your potential. Here she is, Cindy Gilman. Well, well, it's Sunday. I love Sundays. I love the broadcast. This is Cindy Gilman, creator and host of Discover Your Potential. This program was put together for you, my wonderful audience. I thank you for listening, and it's here for you to listen to the guests, to learn, to help yourself, to discover what you can do with your lives. And sometimes the universe has a different idea than we do. Um, What a couple of weeks it's been. Doug, remember I said, testing one, two, remember I said, I hadn't put my Happy New Year hat on yet. Yes, I do. It, well, I'm still not putting it on. <laughs> I'm still not putting it on. I mean, look what's happened over the last few weeks. Right. right. All those people in Texas. And, you know, I'm hoping... I couldn't get any websites or um, places where people could make donations to Texas because, and one of the things, there is a place in Texas that houses over 50 women who are survivors of domestic violence and their children, and they have, they have had to leave. And I'm hoping people will find somewhere where they can make a donation and help these women find a place somewhere else where they can be safe <clears throat> and, uh, and their location not found out by their abusers, of course. Uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been quite a, a. When I said the new year hasn't begun, woof. Um, so it's uh, it's been quite a time. <clears throat> I wonder, <clears throat> testing one too. Uh, I wonder if any of you watched. That uh, interesting interview with Bill Gates. Lots going on in the world. Lots. I um, so I want to read something very briefly. A creed of friendship. A friend is one of the nicest things you can have, and one of the nicest things you can be. A friend is a living treasure, and if you have one, you have one of the most valuable gifts in life. You know, over the years, being in broadcasting, and whether the host or as a guest, I found that people would introduce someone and say, oh, I'd like to introduce my friend. Well, they'd introduce me, and I'd think, friend, I don't even know this person. So they were very eager to use the word friend. But my guest today is a true friend. Um, There's so much going on, I don't even know where to begin. First of all, if you miss part of this program, or 
you'd like a friend to hear it. You, we have set up a website for podcasts. It's www.wdyptalkradio.com. And all, <clears throat> all the former programs are on podcasts on that site. Second of all, I always, always want to thank our entrepreneurs, my favorite twins, Doug and Don, the entrepreneurs who started WBBSHD Radio, for giving those of us a platform to deliver our messages spiritual or otherwise, bring on guests that help you. So thank you. Thank you, Doug and Don. And um, as I said, you're listening to WBBS Radio, HD Radio. We are on Sundays live at 5 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, 2 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, and then, of course, our podcast. So, I hope that uh, you will enjoy the program, learn something from today's program, and um, what else was I going to say? Oh, I hope, I know this is such a stressful time right now between COVID-19 and how it's changed all of our lives in some way, all of our lives. And now, you know, everybody hopefully is walking around with their masks staying a distance, washing their hands. Now they have a vaccine. Let's hope that, uh, that that will help. I think over the last, <clears throat> last few years, we have been through enough. <clears throat> and as they say, enough is enough. There's many things that we can be grateful for as well. On um, on February 20th, 2003, Rhode Island experienced one of the most devastating events in the state and country. The station nightclub fire. After pyrotechnics were set off, a blazing fire killed not only over a hundred people, but devastated their families, friends, and community. But through this horrific event. Some blessings did come from it. And that is where I met my friend, and I say that sincerely, John Land. He is a true friend. And we met through a mutual spiritual friend. There are many, many types of obstacles and loss. And one of them, there are so many types 
loved ones, friends, children, pets, personal identities. I mean, when we look at what's gone on with COVID-19, how people, people have lost their businesses, their, their livelihood, their, and I have mentioned over the last several months how so many children in this country go to bed hungry. Of course, now you can't even use the word hunger. You have to use the word food-deprived. I guess that that's the, uh, the new way of saying hunger. My guest today... <clears throat> is one of my favorite people. Yes, he is a friend, a true friend. He is a published author, screenwriter. He is a graduate of Brown University. He mentors young students. And... Uh, he is a writer. His genre is fiction thrillers and nonfiction mysteries. So, John, welcome to Discover Your Potential. Well, you've boosted me way up, Cindy. I don't know if I can live up to this high bar you set for me, but I'll do my best. <laughs> no, I, everything I said was true. Uh, what is it they say about, uh, the, the great line at the end of the movie, the man who shot Liberty Valance, when the, when the legend becomes truth, print the legend. So, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like you've combined the two into one, uh, uh, truth and legend, but that's okay. Well, what's the legend? Uh, well, you just, you said so many nice things about me. It couldn't all possibly be true. No, no one is that good a person. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we actually met because of the station nightclub fire. We did. We did. And because of a mutual spiritual friend. That is also true. Um, Nick O'Neill was the youngest victim in the station nightclub fire. And... Uh, yeah, he's been, since yesterday, he's been very active here. He just wants to make sure he can get a word in edgewise. Oh, he's done more than get a word in. He's been <laughs> moving stuff and playing with stuff. Now, you you did some collaborating writing with him. Yes. And, um, you know, for me, this was... You know, my, my first and, and I have to say only experience um, directly. It's, it's something I've always believed in, but never until the, the aftermath of the station fire, never had a direct experience with. But you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because my experience is different than most people um, who, are, who have spiritual experiences, who, who, you know, who get messages um, and I have friends all the time, you know, at my, at my age, unfortunately, um, at 63, um, more and more people I know are, are, are not making it through, you know, they're dying. And, you know, it just happens as you get older. It's one of the things that's part of life. If you're lucky enough to live a long time, you're unlucky enough to watch a lot of people that you know pass away. And people ask me all the time, or they'll say something like, I know that you're, you know, you believe in this stuff, and... Um, last night, the, you know, my husband's, my, my late husband's cell phone rang and it was exactly at the time where we said that we would do something, you know, every Saturday we would, you know, at five, this time and it rang at this time on Saturday. You think that's a coincidence? And I said, no, <laughs> and I'll always say no. Right. Um, right. and it's, it's like anything else. If you look for something. You can't find something unless right. you look for it or unless you're right. willing to be open to it when it happens. 
And I, and I use the old phrase, and it's a cliche, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. And let me give you an example. You mentioned the collaboration. Well, it would take hours to tell the whole story of, of my relationship with Nikki and how, uh, and how I, as a perfect stranger, as he, uh, why he came to me and, and how he came to me. And how I realized it was one client. Huh? Yes, exactly. I could not. I don't know how. How Cindy, you could get you, 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 people like you who have who are so gifted, but you've got all those voices in your head. I only have one, and that's a problem. And that takes you know that 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 takes up a lot of my head. But when I to, to illustrate what I'm talking about, and I and again, I have examples that would take hours to tell of how this all happened. But to go to the writing collaboration, before he died, um, Nikki had written a play called right. They Walk Among Us. Right. Um, and everybody forgot about it. But not long after the station fire, one of his friends remembered, hey, what about that play Nikki wrote? Right. And he had written it well over a year before. I think he was still 16 when he wrote it. He was 18 the night of the station fire. So it was, it was a year and a half, maybe. And right. it was a 40-page uh, play that was very well written. And um, his brother, Chris, who's an immensely talented theatrical director, right. um, it was first performed where you and I, the first time it was ever performed was at a church in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Um, and you and I met at that church for the first time that night. That's right. And it was, it was later performed again um, as some of the cast changed, and appropriately enough, uh, Nikki's half brother David played the character that Nikki was going to play if the if the play was ever done, you know, while he was physical. So um, it was also turned into a movie. They walk among us by uh, Nikki's brother Chris and uh, a terrific filmmaker named Christian De Resendiz. Um, That's forty one. The movie that was forty. That, no, no, no. Forty one is the Nikki story. But okay. this was the movie version of They Walk Among Us. They're kind of like companion pieces. Where I come into this is I read this play after I had gotten to know Nikki's parents, Dave and Joanne. Right. They gave me this play to read. And I read it like, um, like I would any other young person's writing. And I wrote Chris a letter, but I addressed it to Nikki. And I knew he was reading it, and I knew he knew exactly what I was saying in wow. which I basically analyzed what, what, what he had done very well in the play and why I liked it so much. Well, I was inspired then, if you want to call that the word, to adapt They Walk Among Us into a screenplay, which is something that I do. Now, this is very important for your listeners, and it explains the relationship, friendship, bond that I have with Nikki. The writing process is like a marriage. The collaboration is, is it's at the spiritual level. When you're, when you're writing, you're not writing from your conscious mind. You're writing from your subconscious. You're writing from the imagination. Well, that's where our spiritual friends, that's how they reach us. They reach us through our subconscious, through our imagination. They don't reach us through our conscious mind, because our conscious mind is saying, this can't be happening. So, when I wrote, when when I started writing um, this play, this, this screenplay, a few things happened, and I'm going to get to our first session that you and I had um, in a few minutes. But leading up to that, as I'm writing, and I don't want to give people um, the false impression that that we were such a team that I could hear his voice in my head at that point. I couldn't. We hadn't reached that level yet. This was a process that got us to that level. But I was trying to channel him the same way if I'm, you know, if I'm writing a series. Um, it, it, it's like anything else. You're channeling your characters. Right. So I would send, you know, every few days after I'd write 20 or 30 pages, screenplays tend to run about 120 pages, I would send to his mother, Joanne, and to his brother, Chris, the pages that I had written. And right. every time I did it, they would come back and say, "How did you know? Where did the how did where did you get the name Rigby Zorn for the villain?" And I said, "I have wow. no idea because things just come to me." Well, his brother says, "Well, when Nikki was a little boy, 
he, he had a stu- his favorite stuffed animal was named Rigby. Wow. There are dozens of examples like that in the screenplay where of Nikki reaching through my subconscious, my imagination to insert himself into the collaboration process. Wow. Then, so I had already written a great, I, I'm not sure if I had finished it uh, with Nikki. We had finished it, I should say. But a lot of it was written already when I first went to see you. And when people go to a psychic medium, what they're looking for in general, and then I'll get specific, they're looking for affirmation. They're looking for affirmation that the things they're feeling in their, in their mind that the signs they're getting aren't uh, actually, they're not making it up, that they're right. not overthinking it, that they're not just imagining that this stuff is happening. That they're looking for validation. They're looking for, val- I said affirmation, validation is a perfect way of putting it. So you and I sat, I sat down in your office, and you right off the bat started you know, saying, you're not listening to him. He is trying to tell you stuff, and you're closed off to what he's trying to say. Well, wow. by the way, my, my physical collaborators make the same complaint about me. So ah. um, I, I tend to be a one-trick a one pony, a one-person a one show. Um, so Nikki was no different there. But then, and let me back up a little bit, the original opening scene of the screenplay was a recreation of the station fire because the, the play that Nikki wrote they Walk Among Us, is about teenagers who pass away before their time and come back to Earth as guardian angels. But his version of guardian angels was that they, would, they could eat, they drank, they changed their clothes. I mean, they, they had a physical presence. Um, they, they could make themselves seen. Um, so one of the characters, there were three of them in, in the play, so when, when we were writing this, the opening scene of the screenplay, which was an expanded version of the stage play, the opening scene was the station fire. Wow. Not called that, but it was a recreation of a nightclub fire right. to establish how this character, who becomes vital um, in the hero's quest, they know, uh, basically, I, as I said, it's expanded. So there are new characters in the screenplay who were not in the stage play it's we kept we kept the stage play intact pretty much um you know structurally but then we had to add quite a bit to make it two hours long 90 minutes long um Mm. so after doing that in the writing process there's a lot of rewriting a lot of rethinking that's all the time i thought it was too on the nose I thought in my head, I would now here, here instead of going with my instincts, now I'm overthinking it myself. I'm saying it's too much, it's too exploitive to do the station fire. So I took it out and I put in a bus accident mm-hmm. instead. A, bu- a school bus crash um, is how N- Nikki's character in the, in the um, screenplay passes away. That's mm-hmm. how his life is claimed instead of a station fire. When we went, and now I want to get back to, to the point I wanted to make. When I went to see you, one of the first things you said was, you took the station fire, you, to me, you took the station fire out of the screenplay, and he's upset. He wants it in. And I went, oh, my God. Whoa. How could... Now, I, I get such a kick out of the fact of people who don't believe in psychic mediums. Now, I challenge anyone, any skeptic out there who's listening to this today, explain to me how a third person I had only met once in my life who, be- who did not really know much about this screenplay at all could possibly have guessed that or have read my mind. So you believe that someone can re- a psychic medium can read my mind, but you don't believe that they can actually... Sp- which is more realistic? So, yeah, exactly. So, um, with, so you pulled this out, and I got... Th- you, you, and that was just one of the things that you asked me about or that you said that Nikki didn't like this part and didn't like this part, and I'm going, oh, my God, I've got to do a better job of listening to him. I've got to try harder. It's not just pulling up another chair and making believe that he's sitting next to me. But 
what created this bond between us, and I guess the purpose of why he came to me to spread his word, to get his message out there, our bond is defined, was defined by this collaboration. Because when you write, as I said before, you write from the imagination, the subconscious, you're writing from your soul. That's where you're writing from. It's coming right. from a part you're of channeling. you don't... Uh, exactly. Well, you're channeling your story. Your sto- right. You're letting your story be. You're not... You're, you get out of... The best thing a writer can do when he's writing, or she's writing, is get out of the way and let the story be the story. Well, whatever happened on an intuitive level between us in the course of this writing process, especially in the wake of the session that I had with you, bonded us together in a way that is, is, is like I said, a collaboration is like a marriage, you know, and, and that's what ended up happening. We, we became so close that, it, and this is something I don't tell, when I tell this story, I don't tell this a lot because it's hard to put into words, but the first time I ever actually heard him, and when I say heard him, I don't mean out loud that would be captured on a tape recorder. The first time I ever knew there was another person in the room was the night we actually finished the first draft and sent it to his mother. It was 4 a.m., or even a little later, on the morning of 4th of July, 2003. I know this because it was the 4th of July. Now, the reason it was so late was um, Nikki's parents, Dave and Joanne, told me that he he was a writer... He wrote songs, he wrote plays, he, wrote, he had a journal. He wrote very late at night. So to, and I'm a late-night person, but normally I wouldn't start writing at 1 a.m. But right. with this screenplay, almost all of it was written by both of us, obviously. Late um, at night? By, very late at night. So I was in his zone. I even tried. He, Nikki, when he wrote, liked listening to music. I tried that. I tried listening to, his, to get him to get me and his, to, to, to try to bring us together and to try to channel him better, but I couldn't do it. I can't have any distractions when I'm writing. So I had to go back to silence. I don't think he was too happy about that. I think he wanted, you know, um, Motley Crue or one of his other favorite hair bands from the 80s on while, he was, while we were doing the writing because it made him feel better. But I couldn't concentrate. So I, and, and I want to turn it back to you, Cindy, but here's the thing. If you're out there and you're not sure about this world, the world I'm talking about, if you're not sure that the spiritual world and our world are actually one world, and that we actually that it is uh, it is more than possible to have to to maintain to, you know, for for those who have passed to maintain an active presence in your life. If you're skeptical about that, then you need to explain to me how there are probably 15 to 20 references. In this screenplay, like the stuffed animal Rigby, there are other names. Where do they come from? They were familiar to Nikki in some way. They were relatives of his I had never known or never met. They were incidents in his life that were recreated um, in this. How did you know this, uh, this scene at the beach and stuff like that? Um, well, I don't know how I knew, but now it's pretty obvious how I knew that, he, that I was channeling what and as time went on, I was channeling better what he was trying to get across, especially in the wake of, of our session. So my challenge for, for skeptics out there is, explain to me how someone who does not claim to be a psychic medium, me, could have found basically 15 to 20 extremely personal things about someone I never knew physically in life. How could I have done that if that person wasn't sitting next to me feeding me the information intuitively to my subconscious? I mean, either I'm the greatest fortune teller or whatever you want to, you know, uh, I'm I'm Kreskin squared, or it's, it's, you know, and having never had this kind of experience before. Or, you know what, this young man whose life, whose work wasn't finished, when, this, when, he, when his life was claimed by the station fire, his physical life, um, because, you know, physically that's only part of us. You know, our essence is not our bodies. I, I, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't go to graveyards, and I never did really, but now it makes no sense to me to go to a graveyard because the person you're visiting is not there. 
That's the person right. you're visiting, when you go to that graveyard, they're probably standing behind you, and they're glad you're there because they're glad you're there because you remember you pay them. respects. You pay that you haven't forgotten them. And you know right. what? That's great. If that's how you you keep someone who's passed in your memory, if you keep them close to your your heart and your mind and your spirit, that's wonderful. And you know, I'm sure today there were a tremendous number of people who visited the station fire, um, February or yeah, actually yesterday, February twentieth, um, who lost loved ones, um, whose lives. I, I this weekend, I, I respectfully commemorated the 22nd memorial of my dad. I didn't go to the cemetery because he's around all the time. But it doesn't it doesn't demean people who do it. People who Correct. leave remember the Jewish tradition of leaving stones on a grave is simply to show to leave a, to leave a testament that you were there. That's all that all it means. That's, you know, that's right. what the stones on the graves are about to let them know you were there. Some well, they moment. know because they haven't. They're not physically with us anymore. Right. And you know, it's it's interesting because someone who was a, who was never known to me physically, you know, I've welcomed in, into my life, but I have never done that, or I have never sought that with relatives, my mother, my grandparents who have passed. And it's kind of like, you know, it, it, there's a lot of reasons for that, I'm sure. Um, but I can, I can go on for hours about conversations I've had with people who have asked me to share this story with them after they've shared something with me. And they okay, just want to know it's happening. I'm going to ask us to shift gear. Oh, wow. And, um... <laughs> And talk about your newest book that I am so excited about, Overcoming. Yes. And Overcoming, um, I wrote it, I'm, I'm the written with author, um, but the named author is, is, is a wonderful Brown fellow Brown University alum named uh, Gus White. And his, he's known as the Jackie Robinson of orthopedics. Everything he did in his life, he was the first to do as a black man. Wow. And um, we conceived this book called Overcoming. The subtitle is Lessons in Overcoming Adversity and the Power of Common Humanity. And the message of the book is twofold. And basically, I just said it. It's about how, with all the adversity, we did not, we wrote, we conceived this book and, and did a lot of the work on it pre-COVID. Um, pre-economic recession, pre-paradigm shift forever, uh, not a blip, a paradigm shift, a model change. Um, and the whole thing was for, for Gus White to take his experiences growing up in the Deep South as a black boy and then becoming the, you know, the, the first ever surgical resident at, at Yale, the first ever African-American medical student at Stanford, the first ever department chief at Harvard. It goes on and on and on. Take those experiences of how he overcame racism mm. and stereotypes to reach that. And we settled on the idea that we would choose a number of adversities um, uh, or things that had to that things you had to overcome. For instance, um, a wrestler who. Uh, had a severe spinal injury, was paralyzed, and ended up getting back on the mat and becoming a champion. Um, a woman who was sexually abused by her priest as a young child, who uh, now counsels, uh, she's a psychiatrist, and she counsels almost exclusively, her practice is, deal, is with adults who have remembered their own trauma. Um, there's a, a, a young man with Down syndrome who has become... Uh, a very well-known working actor in Hollywood, one of the lost boys of Sudan, the only Division I um, female football coach. There, um, Nikki and Nikki's parents, Dave and Joanne, are in it for overcoming the loss of a child. Crystal mm. Cantu, um, a one-arm CrossFit weightlifter, uh, you know, a woman who lost her arm and went and went on to become to break records in weightlifting with one arm. 
Wow. Um, it goes on and on and on. A survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing who had severe PTSD, who conquered, who overcame his adversity by running marathons on all seven continents across the world. And what these stories are, Cindy, are kind of parables, even though they're true, of things that we can learn about the, our own problems. How do we overcome our own problems? How do we find the, the, the inspiration? How do we find the, the certainty that things can be better on the other side, that it's going to get better? And these 20 profiles of people, it's, it's, it's 20 chapters, 20 people, and it's all their own stories about what happened to them and how they overcame the adversity. Um, and one of the great messages, and, and this, is, this is right up with what I experienced with Nikki, and, and, and what is nobody, nobody overcomes adversity alone. Everybody, it's con- other people. You can- nobody, sur- nobody succeeds in anything in a vacuum. It's all about the power. We're so much better when we're well, together. We're all connected. Well, uh, but a lot of people don't acknowledge that. They don't. They, the power of common. Look, you don't have to know anything more about the opposite of. Con- Sometimes the greatest way to understand something is to understand it, is to look at its opposite. We all viewed the opposite of common humanity on January 6th at the Capitol building with those freak shows, those wild uh, people. Those uh, people are the opposite of common humanity. They, they, you know, they're, they're trying to overthrow a government, you know, whatever. You say whatever, you know, I could talk about that for hours, too. But we're so much better when you see someone who needs help. And you don't turn away. You say, what can I do for them? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Please. A, a young man, and you, just, you mentioned my mentorship, um, a football player at Brown who graduated just a couple years ago, Connor Coughlin. Um, he's 24, 25 now. I think he's 25. He's you know, built a great career in real estate. He's one of the most outstanding young men I've ever met. And I, and I knew his parents very well. Why do I say I knew? Because he lost his two parents right around Christmas time and New Year's within a week of each other. His mother this had year? cancer. She was a, this year, just a few weeks ago, literally months ago. Um, he lost his, his mother was, was, in, was in the hospital with cancer, and she was, he knew she was never coming out. Mm. But his father had a sudden heart attack, had no heart condition at all. He was a smoker, yes, okay, but he died instantly. And then a week later, his mother passed away too. Well, Connor's 25 years old. He didn't have the money to pay for the funeral. You, know, you know, the funeral was an issue. There were a lot of issues. Well, his teammates got together, and they did one of those GoFundMe pages, yep. and they raised over $150,000 wow. you know, to, to help this young family out because there were no other relatives. It was Connor and his younger sister. Uh. And that, when you hear stories like that, right? you know, when you hear stories of... of People opening their homes to strangers. You mentioned Texas at the beginning of the show. People right. opening their homes to total strangers right. so they can get water and take a shower. You know, imagine someone knocking on your door with a towel and say, hey, can I take a shower? Right. And, you know, if you're in Texas the last week or so, you say yes. And that's what I mean. And, and that symbolism of you're helping someone clean the, cleanse themselves is symbolic for a lot of reasons. But common humanity makes the person giving as it is good for the person giving as as it is for the person getting absolutely if you think about in in the chapter on dave and joanne i'm i don't i I didn't write myself into it because my part of nikki i'm not the only one who's had these experiences with nikki nick o'neill i mean i'm i'm just there's a long line of people so how did what how did they overcome their grief? Well, you never overcome the loss of a child, not totally. But in this case, they overcame as best they could the loss of a child by acknowledging the fact that he never really left, that he was still a part of their lives, that he was exactly. still watching them and, they could, and, and still communicating with them and still leaving them signs and, 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 you know, and through the number 41, um, which was right. something that was very important for some reason in his life. Uh, 
and maybe that was the reason, just just so he would have some some moniker, some tagline, 41. But right. the point is that common humanity, what Nikki was able to do for his parents through me and others, through you, through a psychic named Robert Brown from, from London. Through, right. You know, and, and, but not just psychic. You know, you and Robert Brown come immediately to mind by, because he reached out, he reached his parents through the two of you and communicated directly with them. But there are any number of people in, in Nikki's life who have stayed close to his parents, and they'll just call out of the blue and tell Dave and Joanne, hey, uh, this happened this morning. I get, and, and, you know, uh, or I'll call Joanne and say, hey, Nikki said this last night. I don't know what it means. And more times than not, Joanne or Dave will go, oh, my God, how did you know? Well, they know now how I know it. Nikki told me. He wants them to know he's still here. But he's where he's supposed to be. I don't go into this earthbound stuff. There's right. no such thing as, as, as spirits. Who, maybe there is. I don't know. I've never believed in that. It's just a matter of spiritual, our spiritual people, spirits, spirits still have free will. They don't, there's, there's a lot more similarities with who they are after, in, after they're no longer physical than there are differences. They're still the same. They still have the same soul. And we are defined by our essence, by our souls. So right. Nikki is still the is same. Eternal. He's still the same kid. Now it's interesting because I, you know, spiritual people can be any age, and sometimes I know his mother has seen him as a young child. She's mm-hmm. also gotten visions of him as he would look today at 34 or 35 right. because he was 18 in the station fire. I only see him one way uh, in my mind. I only. I only see him as the 18-year-old kid. That's the Nikki that I know, and that's the Nikki that I have a relationship with. Now, um, what about the, the other people in your book, Overcoming? Well, um, Did you it, interview each, each yes, one? Yes, interview, and I interviewed Dave and Joanne, by the way, um, because I wanted to, right. to detach myself from what I knew about the story and not put myself in the story. Um, so I did it from their viewpoint. Um, th- I mentioned a few already. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I look at, um, there's a wonderful family I, I've known forever from Barrington, but mostly I know them from Brown. The, uh, Mike, Mike Goldberger, we call him Goldie. He was uh, head of admissions and then athletic director at Brown University. A wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he, I've known, uh, I, I, even before I knew Goldie and his wife Kathy, I knew their son, Kevin, from my volunteer work at the, in the Barrington school system. Kevin is, um, is disabled. He has something that, uh, uh, that resembles cerebral palsy. It's not exactly cerebral palsy. It was from uh, something that happened at birth, an oxygen deprivation. Um, oh, dear. So Kevin has been basically disabled all his life. Um, and they have selflessly, I mean, they look at Kevin as a blessing. They think Kevin is the greatest thing that's ever happened to them because of what they've learned from him. But wow. as you get older, you start to worry about who's going to take care of your disabled child after you're gone. Exactly. And they were brought, and, and again, how did common humanity, overcoming that kind of adversity, overcoming um, the need, you know, you know, where you don't, every part of your life has to, be, has to revolve around taking care of a child who can't take care of himself. So it's everything. That's, that's the adversity, if you want to call it adversity. But in the case of Kevin, they were able, they, they, they met this wonderful couple, the, the Sousas, um, who mm-hmm. run an organization in Rhode Island that is devoted toward creating a network to, that will live on when the parents are no longer capable of taking care of their son or daughter. So they, they build this network out so that, so that the child who is now an adult would never be alone and never want for companionship. That's done. It, it, so that's common humanity, and that's Excellent. how they have gotten through this adversity. Um, I interviewed I, one of my favorite chapters in the book. is not a dramatic chapter, and there's so many dramatic chapters. It's with a young transgender man, 24 years old, named Echo. And what I loved about, this, about meeting Echo and interviewing him was reading his stories and, wa- and looking at his art because he was channeling 
his his emotions and who he he was evolving into, um, who he was now comfortable being, um, through the people he was painting and writing. And I so enjoyed writing this chapter. Again, how do you overcome the adversity of, of and again, you're, when you're transgender, the reason why it, is it adversity? I think you can define it that way because it, you have to, it, 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 it poses a challenge in everything you do. You're right. always, you know, you, you, it's an identity you struggle with for much of your life before you acknowledge it. And Echo channeled his emotions through his art. I found that to be a wonderful expression that defines what art is all about. Wow. Um, interesting when you think about what Nikki did when he came to me and we wrote the screenplay, Nikki was also reaching out. He wants, he wants his message out there. He wants people to know there's more. He right. wants people to know that your loved ones have moved to a different zip code. No, you can't have the same relationship you right. used to have and long for still, but now, that doesn't mean they're gone. The transgender person. Yes. What, what's their name? Echo? Echo is, is the name he goes by. So was he a female first or a male first? Well, a transgender male was a female, was born biologically a female. But uh-huh. I did, you, you, a transgender male is what you identify as. Right. That you, the, the, so Echo is a male. Because that's what he identifies as, and that's what he should be. Um, I mentioned the lost boy of the Sudan. I mean, we have a Liberian immigrant who settled in Providence and went to a wonderful school called E-Cubed Academy named Aretha Tarr. She was a Liberian immigrant, and she witnessed her grandfather being murdered in Liberia. She was oh. on the run for months. She, you know, she, the family was separated. Um, she was subject to a terrible abuse. She was, at one point, the only water they could drink as they were hiding from the army in a church full of bodies, imagining the smell. They could only drink water with a little bit of bleach in it, because otherwise it was poisonous. Because oh, it was taken. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, we look at what we're all going through right now. And let's face it, I, I haven't got a number for this, but I'm going to guess that three-quarters of this country is... It, 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 you know, with COVID and everything else, three quarters of this country is probably facing some level of, of, of deep adversity as a result of what we've all faced this past year. Um, or even longer. And what, and what you get out of reading stories like Aretha Tarr and Echo and, um, you know, another one, um, a football player, big, strong guy named Matt Packness. Where is he from? Matt Pack is, well, he went to Brown. He's from New Jersey. He was sexually abused by his neighbor. He Uh. was physically abused um, by his father. And and the great thing about these stories is they all have third acts. What do I mean by that? Well, Matt Packness was a graduate assistant coach at Penn State in 1986 and 1987. He was the first person to report Jerry Sandusky. Um, who abused all those children as part of the Second Mile Foundation. Um, he knew because he had been abused. And it's, it's interesting, because, and this will tie in. Matt feel, and whenever he's around a pedophile, mm-hmm. he knows them immediately because he, they, they, he, they give off, he says, an odor that's like urine, and he, and he smells it. What I believe is there is no physical odor. He is smelling their souls. He knows what evil feels like. Smells like, right. And, you know, you could call it a smell. Call it whatever you want. But it's not a smell that anyone else would, would, would notice, if, even if you said, hey, do you smell that? No, because it's, it's a smell that's coming off their essence. It's coming off their soul. And that's where he's getting it from. So that ties a little bit in. But all of these people, and they're all wonderful people, um, but people who've lost their dreams and found new ones, people who've had lung cancer and say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me appreciate life more. And again, the, you know, Jim Pantelis, who was a stage, is a stage four survivor of lung cancer, talking about the fact that he'd get home from the hospital and his driveway would be plowed in Michigan or his lawn would be cut. 
um, because people just did it. He never asked them. They just did it. That's right. the power of common humanity. And when this world is at its best, it's because people are joining together and are defining themselves by what bonds us together instead of the lunacy and the, and the, and the absurdities of what drives us apart. Right. Which one stands out to you the most? Wow, that is, you know, um, <laughs> that, that, that's a really hard question. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I hate to cop out. Um, there isn't one. Because okay. all of these people, in their own right, and, I'll, and what do I mean? When, when I was growing up um, in the early 60s, mid-60s, there was a television show on the air called The Naked City about a detective in New York played by an actor named Paul Burke. And every episode would start the same way. Paul Burke would be shown, and it was black and white, smoking a cigarette. Everybody smoked in those days. And he was silhouetted against the New York skyline. And he'd look out at the audience and say, there's six million people in the naked city and six million stories. Here's one of them. Whoa. And that's the case. This is... I'm a huge fan of a nonfiction writer named Studs Terkel from Chicago, who wrote three of the greatest nonfiction. He wrote more than that, but I've only read three. Three of the greatest nonfiction books ever written by an American author. The Good War, about veterans returning from World War II, uh, working about the working class, and American Dreams Lost and Found, which is my personal favorite. And what Studs Terkel did is he let people's stories tell themselves. He got out of the way. And he told, he let people, he was a master interviewer. And he would let people tell their own stories. And the point was, you could read 50 profiles in one of his books, and you never got bored. There was never any redundancy. Hmm. So when you ask me, I'm not copping out no. by saying I don't have a favorite chapter. I literally... Um, I, I, I like, there are some chapters I think I like more than others just because they're more dramatic. So, yeah, I, I, I tend to favor the dramatic, and I think so just psychically I probably enjoyed some of the early interviews I did. Let um, me ask you this. Yes. Instead of your favorite, were there people you would have liked to interview but didn't get to them? That's a great question. Great question. As I said, we made a list of adversities, and then we tried to fill in somebody for as many adversities as we could find. Mm-hmm. And, and the one we had that I thought was very important to cover was financial adversity. So mm-hmm. I reached out to a, number of, to, to a number of people who had been swindled by Bernie Madoff. Uh-huh. None of them ever called me back. Not a one. I reached out to a woman who had been swindled here in Rhode Island, where the show, where you and I are both from, a woman named Monique Brady from East Greenwich, Rhode Island, st- mm-hmm. took money, drained the bank accounts of some of her best friends and relatives as a scammer. I mean, she didn't even do it with strangers like Madoff did. She did it with friends and family. Was this and, the woman with the Russian adoptees? I don't know. I don't think so, possibly. Okay. Um, but she, you know, fancied herself a socialite. She was a faker, as they say. But here's, right. here's the point I want to get at. I contacted a couple of the people that she swindled. Uh-huh. They never called me back either. And what I, realized, really? what I realized, Cindy, is people will talk about losing a limb. People will talk about what, witnessing family members murdered. People will talk about identifying as a boy all their life and finally have the, having the courage. People... Paul Allen will talk about being a blind psychotherapist. Um, Bobby Satcher will talk about becoming an African-American uh, orthopedic oncologist and an astronaut at the same time. But people will not talk about being swindled or conned because it embarrasses them. And it makes They're them humiliated. feel humiliated. And it humiliates them. And it makes them feel stupid. And so I would have loved to have had someone who was swindled or lost all their money. Um, I remember this. My grandfather used to tell the story of um, when he was a little boy, and he, they had just come to America. 
Um, mm-hmm. they, well, they had been in America about 50, for, for a number of years. Um, coming from Kiev, that's where my family is from on both sides. Um, that's where my and, mother's family yeah, is from. Well, I, a lot of us Jewish people, I think, come from Kiev. Um, but in any case, my grand, great-grandfather, Papa Charlie, came home, and it was the day of the crash in 1929, I guess. Was it 29 or 29? Um, and he said, well, um, we're broke. I lost everything today. And my great-grandmother looked at him and said, so what do you want for dinner? <laughs> you know? Um, About and, one minute. You know, financially, it back, you know, the people who came out of the Depression, I would have loved to have interviewed someone of that ilk, someone who lost everything. Because what I wanted this book to be with Gus White was a, a series of lessons. And I felt that not having a financial lesson was right. a detriment because I thought we were leaving something out. But I, I just find it interesting that people will talk about anything that happens to them that's bad, that they've mm. overcome, but they will not talk about getting conned. They will not Where talk can about people get your book? I always send them to Amazon or their local bookstore. The problem with, 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 any, with, with bookstores today, the ones that are open, is they're, they're keeping sh- smaller stocks. So if yeah. you want a copy of Overcoming, um, you know, less, you know by, by John Land, J-O-N-L-A-N-D, or, or, and you can Google it, or, or Gus White, um, either way, either they're going to order it for you or you're going to have to order it yourself. Because a lot of because it's just a lot of stores aren't stocking it. Unfortunately, it's the just the reality today, um, the way the book business is. So I recommend going to your favorite bookstore and ordering it. Going to your favorite website and ordering it. Um, Walmart, Target, you name the website, it, you can have it in 24 hours. Um, and it's a beautiful book. I call it a coffee table book that's normal hardcover size, because it's it's printed on really great photo grade paper. It's very heavy. It's very thick. It's the, it's the only time I've ever published a $28 book I would call a bargain. Well, we have run out of time. Already? Uh, yes. We've been talking like five minutes. No, it's, I just got a message from Doug that it's time for us to go. Wow. That was fast. <laughs> so, I hope... Uh, I hope people will get your book, Overcoming, by John Land, (laughs) J-O-N-L-A-N-D. Got to put that in. Pardon? Got to get a plug in for J-O-N, since my mother named me that. And uh, I miss her. Um, And your other book on the Metro. Murder on the Metro. Murder on the Metro. Something to distract you from your problems instead of helping you solve them. Right. (laughs) So, John, thank you. You're a wonderful writer. You care about people. You're my friend, and I truly mean it. And um, I wish you the best. And let's hope things improve. I have a feeling... We're going to be wearing these masks for quite a while. And uh, keep doing all the wonderful work you do. And you as well, right back at you, Cindy. You know, we, we think about the number of people you've provided great comfort to and great solace and also life skills and life coaching. So, Thank you. Um, you know, I don't. I, you know, you're, I'm a drop in the bucket, and and and, you know, and you're and you're spilling over the top. No. Okay. Okay, we've got to go. I'm getting getting word from Doug. So, thank you again, John. Everybody out there, stay positive, test negative, and uh, do what you have to do to stay safe. God bless you all. And thanks for being a part of Discover Your Potential. Bye-bye. Yeah.